Welcome to episode 13 of Perspectives Unsettled, a podcast that exists to challenge our assumptions about faith and move the average Christian from status quo into boldness and action. I'm your host, Emily Luttrell. And I'm Ben Stewart. And our producer, Noah Gray. Hello. So this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about some some heavy and difficult topics um, surrounding religious and spiritual abuse. And since we're doing that, it felt just kind of off and wrong to try to come at this from a lighthearted place and have sort of a fun, jokey intro. So because of that, we are just going to go ahead and jump right into the topic. Expecting perfection of anyone is unfair and will lead to more disappointment than it will to anything helpful. Grace can be extended after sin, forgiveness can be offered after repentance, but there's a distinction between a good man who sinned and a bad man who created opportunities to take advantage of others. No one can lead perfectly, but just how low should our expectations be? Fewer and fewer people are being surprised when yet another prominent Christian leader, speaker, author, or pastor makes international headlines with the scandal. Faith-based organizations which were meant to provide spiritual restoration instead were used to prey on women, to gain wealth, or to amass political power or celebrity. And it happens on smaller scales around the world, in internal power struggles at churches, in mentoring relationships that were supposed to be safe, in nonprofits and workplaces and ministries, even in a community where servant leadership and humility are supposed to be foundational, We just can't seem to get away from the draw of power, whether it's seeking it for ourselves or wanting to follow someone who has it. So why do we as Christian communities continue to fall into the trap of celebritizing and even idolizing our leaders? What kind of leaders are we supposed to be looking for? And what should we realistically and ideally expect from them? We'll be talking about some sensitive themes like sexual abuse and harassment and abuse from church leadership. If those are painful topics for you to listen to, you might wanna skip this episode. And while the three of us have experience in churches and in church leadership, none of us are authorities on sexual or spiritual abuse. But we will be sharing the resources that we've been using to educate ourselves in the show notes. So as we get started, um, it's probably helpful to come with some sort of baseline definition of what we mean when we say spiritual abuse or religious abuse. Yeah, I definitely agree that that's an important baseline for us to start at. And while there's any number of words that could be added or nuances. Um, I think for us, just a very simple and straightforward definition that we're using when we talk about spiritual abuse, which I should say is probably interchangeable with a lot of religious, uh, with religious abuse as well. Again, there might be some slight differences, um, but if you hear us say spiritual abuse or switch to religious abuse, we're kind of using those interchangeably. That spiritual abuse or religious abuse will be considered anyone's experience with a religious setting, a religious setting that they would classify as abusive emotionally, mentally, sexually, and physically. And I think one of the key phrases there, um, as obvious as it may seem, is that idea of it's a religious setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And likely coming from someone who has authority in a religious organization, like a pastor or some sort of leader. So it could spill into other settings. It could impact other settings like a home environment um, a marriage or things of that nature, but the origin of the abuse um, takes place in some religious formalized setting or position. So as soon as we start talking about that, everybody can probably think of a couple, you know, prominent Christian leaders who have 
been, you know, complicit or accused of being abusive um, and using their religious authority to do so. Just to like provide some context of stories we may be referencing later in the podcast and just a couple examples of what this looks like. There are just a couple somewhat recent stories um, that have been in the news that I think are worth mentioning when we talk about this. So the first one is probably one that everybody listening to this is aware of is Ravi Zacharias, who is this world famous Christian apologist. He authored something like 30 books on Christianity. He created the um, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which was the largest apologetics ministry in the world. He passed away um, in spring of last year. And somewhat recently, after an investigation into his ministries and some of his work, it came out that he had long-term abusive relationships with women who he generally employed as massage therapists. He had, you know, hundreds of images of women who were massage therapists saved to his phone. Many of them were nude photographs. He solicited these photos and information from women, even up to you know, a few months before his death at age 74. This is not like a, an indiscretion in his youth or in his immaturity. This is something that was ongoing through most of his ministry. He used money from the ministry to pay these women's salaries, to pay for their housing, their schooling. He took advantage of his spiritual authority over them. He took advantage of the fact that they were employed by him. These women have said that he paid them and then said like, well, now you owe me something in return. He said that if these women spoke against him or came out to tell anybody that they would be responsible for millions of people losing their faith because it is tarnished reputation. And this also wasn't the only accusation that came out even after his death. Um, in 2017, there was a woman who tried to speak out and contacted his board, but then was made into basically Zacharias convinced people that he was himself a victim of it, that he was manipulated into this relationship and that this woman was then forced to sign an NDA and was not allowed to participate in any sort of investigation or anything like that. This is somewhat recently unfolding, but one of the more immediate consequences of this is that the RZIM, his ministry, is no longer doing apologetics. They want to distance themselves from him. They're remaking themselves into a grant-making organization that will fund other apologetics ministries, but also organizations that care for victims of sexual abuse. The next example may not be as well known um, is Jean Vignier, who is a Catholic leader. He was the founder of Large, Large, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Large, He's French. Yep. Large <laughs> International, uh, which is this worldwide organization supporting adults mm -hmm. who have intellectual disabilities. He is, is described as his biographer as someone who is so utterly without ego. He was kind of held up as this incredibly humble, powerful man who devoted his life to ministry compared to the other examples who are very like dynamic, charismatic celebrity type of leaders. I think Jean Vignier was, was more well known for his ministry actually um, than his persona, which I think makes him an interesting example. He also passed away in the last year or two and is even um, his name was thrown around as being considered for sainthood just based on his legacy and all the work he's done. But there is an investigation somewhat recently where it was uncovered that he had had coercive sexual relationships with women throughout also his career from 1970 to 2005. That left the women hurt and in need of psychological therapy for years. The victims described that he held psychological sway over them or he was their spiritual advisor. Their relationships were characterized by imbalances of power. And the victims said they felt deprived of their free will 
this again is just another example of somebody using their spiritual authority to coerce people into compromising positions. He even used, you know, religious imagery when he was coercing these women into sexual experiences, saying, like, this is something that God wants us to do. This is something that's chosen. You're special. This is like a holy secret kind of thing. So again, like very dark. And um, this this exposure, I think, was very rattling for a lot of people because, again, he wasn't the the typical megachurch mm-hmm. pastor that people have come to expect this behavior of. Yeah. But speaking of the typical <laughs> megachurch pastor, the last example um, we want to give is of Carl Lentz, who is a celebrity pastor at Hillsong, New York. And again, this example is a little different from the other two because he, he was asked to leave Hillsong last fall and later it kind of came out that he he had had an affair and then later found out that he had had possibly multiple affairs but the thing that is very interesting around the culture around Carl Lentz is there's a lot of bullying and peer pressure and unequal balances of power among the church that that he led and he oversaw people who attended Hillsong New York or worked with him or volunteered under him they've said there's was way more emphasis put on famous congregants than anybody else. There were double standards of behavior, expectations for men and for high-profile staff. There was cover-up and dismissal of allegations of sexual misconduct. And even when there was staff or or high-ranking volunteers who were found actually guilty in a court of sexual misconduct, they were still put in different positions of leadership and power. And basically, all in all, there was a toxic volunteer culture at Hillsong, New York, which was either dismissed or explained away or encouraged by Carl Lentz. And that includes excluding people who brought up concerns or shunning them or telling them they are forced to leave or or giving them demotions in terms of their volunteer role status. So those are just a couple of many, many examples that we could talk about when it comes to people who abuse their religious authority, people who create toxic environments and who, you know, seem to be striving not for some sort of biblical standard of what a leader should be, but something that is informed by the world or by their own wants and desires. And I think what's what's interesting about all three of those examples is, first of all, I mean, they're all very tragic. They're all very sad. And you think about the the fallout of and the ripple effect on the victims and their families and their futures and all of that. So, I mean, just at a human level, they're incredibly sad. Um, all three of those examples involve some form of of sexual abuse, but I think it's interesting to note in the Carl Lentz one, you kind of highlighted this with the culture at Hillsong, New York, that there there is such a thing as spiritual or religious abuse uh, that is also absent of of sexual abuse, and. And that kind of leads into this next portion of, of just helping define like, what is, what are some of the elements of, of how this, like, how did we get here? Yeah. (laughs) How did we get here? And absolutely there's individual fallenness and individual sin, but there's also, I would say like institutional and even when we're talking about some of the institutions here in the United States, in the evangelical world, like systemic issues that we have to acknowledge as well. And what is the difference between some of the realities in the institutional evangelical world versus what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Why are we talking about this as, mm-hmm. uh, as uncharted? Why is this important to us to be talking about 
um, in addition to the fact that we we are we identify as followers of Jesus, so that that's a, that's a good enough reason to be talking about it. But <laughs> yeah. there are also more personal reasons. Um, so it's interesting to me too, I, or I should say, I like want to make note that the spiritual abuse, the religious abuse, can exist even outside of sexual harm, as is in the case of all those three examples. And and I think that's just as important to acknowledge and to be talking about as those those three extreme cases as well. I think it's hard as probably as, you know, Western Christians or as Americans, it's really hard to make a distinction. Even when you know there's a distinction between the church, the global church, international, you know, all, all believers and just churches individual. And so even when we start to think about like, okay, well, what is, what is this supposed to be? What is good leadership supposed to look like? it's really hard to break away from like, okay, well, it's just, it's, it's a pastor who's really good at those things instead of someone like Carl Lentz, you know, it's just like taking him out and putting somebody else in. But really, I think as we've seen over and over again, the system just doesn't really work. There's, there are very few examples of the way we do church here that, that make it um, really healthy mm-hmm. and really biblical in a way. And so even thinking of like, what does, what does scripture say about what our church should look like, how, how leaders are supposed to be, mm-hmm. it's almost really foreign. You, you read some of these things of like what Jesus says leaders should do or what the Old Testament has about, you know, kings and leaders. And it's like, I don't even know how a pastor would, would be able to be like that yeah. and lead a church because just the way we have it set up, it, it feels a little impossible. Yeah. And and I should note that a lot of the statements that we're making today, you know, they, they are broad sweeping. Um, there, there are some generalizations that we're making. So of course there's exceptions uh, to the rule and, and we would hope that. But I will say, like, I agree. I feel like by and large, the institution that has been created here in the West um, and really has its roots that go all the way back to, to the time of Constantine in Rome when he formalized Christianity as as the, at that time, really the world religion, there are, there are facets and whole aspects of the culture of the institution of the church that really almost, I mean, we set people up to fail almost. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. It is so hard to not let the power of the position go to your head and affect your behavior. And as someone who grew up as a pastor's kid, as someone who's been on staff as a pastor at local churches, and now though I'm a step removed, have in some ways a broader connection to the local church, at least anecdotally based on, off my experience, I can, I can say just, you know, how easy it is for narcissistic people to hide in the institution of the church. And, and we have created an environment where we can cover our arrogance, we can cover our ego, we can cover our, our self-motivated desires for, for power in a religious veneer, in religious language. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm glad in a way that there are more and more people having the conversation about spiritual abuse and religious abuse, because I think it's a lot more rampant than we realize and I think that there's a lot more people who have been significantly damaged by it. Uh, again, certainly sexually, like in the examples of the three that you started with, but even just emotionally and mentally and spiritually, 
so much abuse that we, we don't even see and mm-hmm. we don't even really probably identify yet because it's been so covered in this religious jargon. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's pernicious. Like it's slow, it's gradual, it happens over time, it's small, yeah, subtle right. things. Yep. Um, and the more we allow, the less even the, uh, the victims and the perpetrators understand that that's what's going on. Yep. Um, and it actually becomes part of the vernacular. It becomes part of the culture yep. in an, a really unfortunate and unhealthy way. And when you look at, I mean, back to your point, Emily, about what does, what, what did Jesus talk about? What does scripture talk about when, when Christ describes a leader or when scripture describes a leader? I mean, so many of the words and so much of the language is like the exact opposite Mm-hmm. of of what we expect from leaders today. And I want to be conscientious of our time, so I won't read the whole thing, but I do want to read several verses out of out of Matthew 23. I just happened to be reading this the other day and knowing that we were going to be having this podcast, <laughs> but I, I wasn't looking for this. And it just really struck me in Matthew 23, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. So Jesus is kind of acknowledging like these guys sit in a place of power, don't they? It's it's kind of Mm -hmm. like what he's saying. But do not do what they do for they don't practice what they preach, (laughs) which I'm sure that's never happened before. (laughs) I'm sure there's been no pastor who stood up on stage and said one thing and then lived the exact opposite. (laughs) They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. I think that's a really Mm. powerful picture of... um, spiritual aggression and manipulation, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, which was a piece of their, their religious garb wide and the tassels of their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi or teacher by others. And then I, this, this is what struck me as simple as it is, but you says Jesus are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and you do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah, the greatest among you will be your servant for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And again, I like a lot of us who've grown up around church, we, we've probably heard this passage a million times, but especially when, when the conversation of spiritual power and abuse and manipulation is the backdrop of a passage like this, it stands out in such stark contrast, mm-hmm. you know, where Jesus is saying things like, um, actually, you shouldn't be called teacher. You shouldn't be called instructor. You shouldn't be called leader because you have just one of those and it's me. And he goes on to list all these different woes, like woe to you. And a few of them that really stood out is basically calling them out on like you tithe, but you ignore justice. You take care of the temple, but you ignore the marginalized. And again, just how that stands in such stark contrast to like, this is what, this is exactly what's happening Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. It's almost, I I don't want to say it's comforting, but it's interesting to to see that like humans are 
there's yeah. definitely something not that, a lot has changed not since a lot the time has changed where, you know <laughs> yeah. church people are going to always be church people uh, which is something i think carla said in his <laughs> podcast <laughs> that we did with him last year yeah so it's interesting too when you when you sort of broaden the spectrum of when we talk about religious abuse you know that i i would say there's a spectrum um not not in the sense that one is better than the other, but just in terms of the way that it's uh, that it's expressed. You know, there's spiritual manipulation, spiritual aggression, spiritual abuse, and like you were saying, Noah, it is it's it's very pervasive. It's it can be very subtle. Kind of a really kind of a funny uh, example of this is when my wife, my now wife, and I were in college. We weren't, uh, we weren't married at the time we were engaged and it was one of those small Christian liberal arts colleges where a lot of people come in with the expectation, even if it's not stated that they're going to leave married or engaged or whatever. And so, um, she, my wife had graduated. I had one more year and we were engaged, uh, that summer leading into that, to that last year. And she had more than one guy come up to her and in all seriousness, knowing full well that we were engaged, say to her, God told me that we're supposed to get married. Mm. Now that's a silly example. Kathy had the spiritual maturity uh, <laughs> and also the Italian fire, fireness to say fireiness. You know, she, I think her response is, well, that's interesting. God didn't tell me that. <laughs> um, but you think about that. Like if you expand that out or, or, make that a more grave example. Like there are people that, mm-hmm. that don't have the spiritual maturity or the relational connection with the Lord to be able to discern between mm, that's not, that's not legit. Um, so that's just a small example of like, we have extreme illustrations mm-hmm. of spiritual abuse, but there is all these little impervious ways in which it affects us. And it might not even be that somebody doesn't have the spiritual connection with the Lord that it might be that they're seeking something. They're seeking some sort of connection and, and they're fervent in that. And they, they really desire that. And somebody is manipulating that desire. Yep. Mm -hmm. Somebody is taking that desire for connection, for familiarity, for, um, intimacy and manipulating it. That's right. Yep, exactly. And the, the way that we, the relationship that we, have with authority in general is is really is really interesting because as especially as a woman you're kind of told like there there are men above you who know more than you do Mm -hmm. um that may be a little extreme but you're kind of told hey these people are are chosen by god really they're they're anointed they're Mm -hmm. they've been ordained they have something to tell you and if you think that that's wrong then you're the problem and it's not them you know just the way that evangelicalism has evolved and grown, there's always been a very, um, there's a bias towards this sort of very masculine, strong, charismatic, irreverent even kind of attitude that people see and think, okay, well, that is a leader. Mm -hmm. That's somebody who knows what to do. And that's, that's unfair to people who are gifted in leadership in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, when a church, is going through the process of hiring, especially a lead pastor. Sort of the joke is, I don't even know if Jesus would qualify. I mean, <laughs> the list of qualities and characteristics that they want, you know, it's just like, my goodness, there, there's no such person. And, and yet 
it's so easy and tempting for a person in that type of position and power that that's to, to just pursue that, to pursue being that charismatic person, to pursue being that person with this huge vision that they have to chase after and steamroll over anybody to get there, use anybody to get there. And so again, like I think there's, if we realize the number of bodies that are laying in the wake, it, it would be certainly from sexual abuse, which is horrible and tragic. And there would also be bodies lying in the wake from just these aggressive personalities who in the name of kingdom expansion, you know, are really actually just trying to build their own empires. And so they will suck dry the life out of anybody to get what they want to accomplish their dream. And then when they're done with you, or if you don't meet up their expectation, you know, you're, you're cast to the wayside. And why are, why are we surprised that droves and droves of people are leaving the institution of the church? Mm-hmm. Cause it's sort of like, well, if that's how you're going to use me, if that's what our relationship is going to be reduced to, then that's not for me. Yeah. I think, I think in general, the thing that, that I found really interesting and helpful as we've looked into this topic and I've done some research leading up to this episode is that um, just learning how to expand my definition of, um, of what, spiritual abuse could be just because the the word abuse has a carries a lot of weight with it Mm -hmm. and it feels very scary to me and very important in a way that's like oh well well i could never qualify you Mm -hmm. know to say that this happened to me because you know it hasn't been this this bad x y and z hasn't happened therefore i i can't be too upset about it but it's it's really important to think like okay, maybe you don't have to call it abuse, but you can call it manipulation. You don't have to be okay with this. Like just because it's mm-hmm. bad for someone else or or not as bad for you doesn't mean you can't be hurt mm-hmm. by this too. Yep. It reminds me of the Me Too movement and how it gave the authorities a lot of men and women who did experience um, sexual abuse mm-hmm. to call it abuse, yeah. to call it what it was, to acknowledge it for themselves. Yeah. Um, because even minor things are, are baked into our culture yep. and we think, Oh, that's okay. It, it feels similar to that of like, do I even qualify mm-hmm. yeah. in this abuse definition? Right. Well, and it's, uh, there's an extra layer of scariness to it as well, because now, now it feels like we're also dealing with matters of eternity, you know, that, well, if I, if I come forward and I start verbalizing ways that I've been spiritually abused or manipulated or experienced aggression or whatever. Am I like, am I damning God? Am I, Mm -hmm. you know, am I saying like this whole thing? And so, so there's this extra layer of intimidation where it can feel like I'm actually calling into question God himself. Mm. And, and that's, that's scary. And that in and of itself is a result of some of our, institutionalized ways of thinking, you know, that there's this in, there's this inseparable connection between institutional church and the way of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. I mean, that's the whole point of passages like Matthew 23, where Jesus is like calling out these religious leaders. Yeah. And as, as we talk about, you know, the fallout that happens when, when scandals like these, you know, come forward, you, you were mentioning something like that of like, well, if, if I come forward, I'm, I'm putting something in jeopardy, you know, not just for me, but potentially for other people. I mean, this was mm-hmm. one of the tactics that Robbie Zacharias used yep. to keep his victims quiet, saying, "Well, if you if you say anything, then millions of people are gonna 
you know, be damned for eternity because because of you and what you said, you know, not because of me and my abusive actions. Which was kind of like an admission, a backwards admission that what he was doing was wrong, by the way. You know, it was like he was admitting to his abuser, hey, I know this is wrong, but if you come out with this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like this layers of abuse. Right. But we, we just like can't help ourselves. It seems like we let these organizations or people and it it really doesn't matter on what what political spectrum or what sort of denominational spectrum there there are these people in every category it, mm-hmm. it's not just conservative evangelicalism it, it can be progressive christians it can be and it's not it's not only christians but when we talk about religious abuse or christian organization okay right but we let these things become idols we we tell ourselves that they're too big to fail you know like yeah. this you know Hillsong can't have a scandal because it's it's so big and it's so mm. important and it's so reaching in every single part of of church and it's not just you know Hillsong as a church then it becomes Hillsong is involved in my church because can we do their music next right. and what does that mean and, right. and it just is is completely overwhelming. There's this uh, quote that I found that um, is John Piper talking about Mark Driscoll mm. who was a oh, mega yeah. church pastor in Seattle who resigned um, just amid like, you know, allegations of bullying and mismanaging church funds, stuff like that. In sort of the the downfall of Mark Driscoll, John Paper gave an interview and someone asked him like, do you regret supporting him before or working with him or whatever? Or how do you feel about, you know, all this stuff coming out now? And John Piper said, you know, it was a de- it was a defeat for the gospel. It was a defeat for Mark. It was a defeat for evangelicalism. And that really bothers me <laughs> in the sense that like, I I can't let my faith hang on this idea that if one person screws up, you know, mm-hmm. that's a defeat right. for, for the gospel. Because, you know, my faith can't hinge on Mark Driscoll doing everything right all the time. Right. And it can't be like my salvation is not dependent upon anything other than Jesus. Right. And I can't, I can't let myself think of this as a defeat for the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, that puts a lot of pressure on one individual. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction too. I mean, I, I know we've kind of mentioned it already, but just that acknowledging that difference of the Western institutional evangelical church versus following the person of Jesus Christ. And yes, the two certainly overlap. Um, and and even here at Uncharted, you know, I, I want to say clearly and and state loudly that we are pro church. Like we are pro capital C church. I mean, we talk a lot about, I mean, you guys have heard me say over and over again, like Jesus is the hope of the world and his church is the primary way that's meant to be demonstrated and declared. So this isn't like a bash church fest. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think if we are going to really live out in a healthy way, the mission of God about restoration and redemption, we have to acknowledge the hurt and the wounding that exists in our own camp. Like how can we how can we live lives that are all about restoration when in our own camp there are stories and secrets of of injustice and brokenness? And so it's important to distinguish the way of following Jesus, sadly, at at times can be very different than the the evangelical Western institutional church. Mm-hmm. I'm reading a book by Richard Rohr called The Universal Christ. I'm not I'm not done with it. It's not an endorsement. It's kind of weird. 
But one thing that he has written that stuck with me is he's talking about Jesus. And he says, Jesus never asks to be worshipped, but he does ask to be followed. Mm. And that's something that's really, (laughs) is actually very convicting. Mm. Because so much of our, so much of my church experience, going to church and being involved, comes down to this idea that like, I go and I say some nice things about Jesus Mm -hmm. and I talk about how much I love him and then I leave and I'm done. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, that's not anything close to what Jesus asked us to do. That's right. not what following Jesus actually is. Yeah. I'm reading a book right now called Out of the Fourth Place. And the the basic concept is um, how we've created, again, kind of going all the way back to the era of Constantine as Roman emperor, how we've created church as this unique, specialized, formalized fourth place that in order to learn about God in order to relate to God in order to have communion with God, you have to step into this fourth place and how that is so actually anti the message that Jesus came with, (laughs) you know, that he, he referred to himself as the temple. He referred to himself as that place through which communion happens. And then you see in all over the place in the new Testament, the epistles and, and other letters where those writers are like, okay, people, now you are like, Emily, you are the temple and no, you are the temple and I'm the temple. And yet we've reverted back to this physical brick and mortar fourth place that Mm -hmm. says in order for you to relate to God, it's all circling around this. And again, that's not, I'm not trying to slam that necessarily, but that's the sort of environment that creates these, these positions of power where we put people on stages literally and figuratively and, um, you know, and they are the final authority of, of what it means to follow God and, and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's hard. That's a lot of weight to put on one mm-hmm. person's shoulders. I remember like in Sunday school, hearing the story about the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and Moses goes up on his mountaintop to talk to God and he comes back and there's like a golden cow and they're all <laughs> worshiping. And I remember thinking like, gosh, how stupid can you get? Like, come <laughs> on, like you just got out of Egypt. And I'm like, I kind of get it though. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a really strong draw in order to like put something up that you can look to, yeah. whether it's a person or a philosophy or whatever. Yeah. Um, it always tends to not be Jesus, however <laughs> we make it. Yeah. So this was this was an idea that came that I think shows up a lot, especially specifically in the Carl Lentz kind of story, which I think is probably more relatable for most people because we all have you know, a story or two of like petty church issues becoming toxic, becoming difficult. Um, and this it's this idea that there is some sort of Christian corporate ladder that you can ascend and that the the more stuff you accomplish, the the more gifts that you profess to have or the more gifts that other people tell you you have, like the higher up you are in this in in Christianity, you know, the more blessed you are, you know, essentially some sort of prosperity gospel kind of teaching, but not necessarily with wealth, but with, you know, honor and acclaim. It is something that as I've, as I've recognized, it's way more pervasive, you know, in my life, even, even in how I think of, you know, faith and in myself and my place in it, it's extremely pervasive that I don't think I would have recognized unless I stood outside and like someone had said, Hey, this kind of behavior is abusive. And made me really think about why that is. Well, it can very easily lead to this sense of superiority and and arrogance and full disclosure. Like I I am guilty of that. 
I mean, I, I do have to confess that to the Lord and I've had to confess it to other people that maybe even just in the most subtle of ways, I have a sense of superior superiority, you know, when I'm a pastor and I'm seeing other people go about their lives, chasing after these more earthly pursuits. Mm-hmm. And again, that's, you know, so much of our history, recent history has divided, has created that divide of the secular and sacred. We've created those, even those divisions, those categories. And the higher you are in the, in the sacred category, um, the more authority, the more honor, the more respect you carry. And probably the higher, so so is also the higher amount of snobbery and, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and just looking down on others. Now we can, we can, we can cover it pretty well with, with religious jargon. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your point, there is definitely this culture that ranks and prioritizes and honors people who are missionaries overseas or lead pastors who get up every Sunday and preach the word of God and, are those great vocations? Absolutely. You know, and are there people genuinely called to those? Yes. I'm one of them in in a way, you know, but it, it, you really do have to be so conscientious of how easily it can lead to this spiritual snobbery where mm-hmm. you look down on, on others. Yeah. I think where I see it in my own life is I'm, I'm, I'm a competitive person. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm, I'm a pretty competitive person and I, I see other people, you know, who have things that I don't have or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, some sort of lifestyle that I, that I would like and don't have. And so I think, okay, well, there must be something, there must be something I have that they don't have. And then it becomes, and this is definitely something that is like, was encouraged in like being a youth group kid and Mm -hmm. being like a, a smart kid in middle school or whatever. Or it's like, okay, well, I'm just deeper than they are. You know, mm. I like read more difficult books than they are. And I, I have some sort of understanding of God <laughs> because, because I felt the need to like make myself feel better right. about, you know, stuff that I, that I was jealous of right. and my friends or whatever. And it's something that continues into adulthood occasionally, yeah. but there's also this sort of, um, you know, like thinking of, of life and thinking of God um, bestowing spiritual gifts like their rewards or like there's something that are earned or that some are worth more than others. It, it comes a very competitive and transactionary mm-hmm. kind of relationship with spirituality in general. Yeah, that's good. Do you think it is possible to have some sort of Christian community church without leaders? I, I mean... So I guess maybe breaking the question down even further, do you believe that it's possible to have a community without leaders? I don't know. That's why I asked you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'll just go off of like what I'm recalling on the moment here. So maybe I'll change my answers after I listen to this podcast later. But <laughs> I don't I don't think the concept of of leadership in community in and of itself is is a wrong or bad concept. I mean, I think that's why so much of scripture, especially in the New Testament, is spent on describing and painting a picture for what are the right characteristics of a leader. So at least on the, in this moment, the scripture that I'm recalling, it's not so much like challenging, should you have a leader? It's more painting a very stark picture for characteristics of that leader that are the polar opposite of what we will move towards left to our own devices. 
I mean, and even like even in that moment when the nation of Israel was comparing themselves to other nations and saying, we don't, we want our own king. Like we want our own human leader. Mm -hmm. God was pretty much like, okay, I'm going to warn you though, what type of person, you know, you you should have and what type of person you'll probably get and where that's probably going to lead you. And so I think there's like a full acknowledgement, even by God himself, that there's a lot of danger that that leadership can move a group of people towards any community. I don't think that means like throw the baby out with the bathwater and now we're leaderless and we're just sort of the stagnant pool of people. But I do think the characteristics and the values that are meant to be embodied in a leader that claims following Jesus are so just against the natural grain. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's, it's a very, that's why it's described as a very difficult uh, role to be in. It's not easy. It shouldn't be one taken lightly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, as I'm verbally processing the answer to your question, I, I think I would say there is still a place for leadership, but that it probably looks a lot different than what we would normally see. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a bit of a difference between leadership and authority too. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what we or what I've seen and been in party of for the last, Oh, I don't know, like 12 years of my life or something like that mm-hmm. is a, a conflation between leadership and authority. Mm-hmm. And what I see in the examples that we've, we've spoken of through this podcast, Ravi Zacharias, Jean Vanier, Carl Lentz, they abused their leadership. Yeah to to submit people underneath their authority mm-hmm. and they they leverage their authority mm-hmm. to manipulate people and to get what they wanted yep so to me it's i think it's similar to the question of like how do you build an like an ethical democracy mm-hmm. <laughs> so a truly representative accountable democracy should be easy in theory right mm-hmm. if you don't do as your constituents say, they need to vote you out. That's not how we, I mean, we, we play a game right now. Right. But, um, I don't think anybody's going to be shocked or turn off the podcast at this point. Everybody, um, you can <laughs> yeah. you can look at it from either side of the aisle and say yeah. the other people are playing a game and we're trying to help people. Right. Whatever. Right. It's fine. It's not fine. But <laughs> right. uh, yeah. for, the, for the, the politics of it, that's not the point. But truly it should be a fully accountable mm-hmm. leader should be fully accountable to the people that they lead, mm-hmm. which means that the people that they lead are also leading. Yep. And the people that they lead also have authority. Yep. They have the authority to remove a leader. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's not always how we set up churches. Mm-hmm. We set up elder boards to oversee leaders. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the elder boards also have the same uh, authority complexes and problems that mm-hmm. the leaders do as well. Yeah. And again, climbing that corporate ladder of the church. Yeah. Well, I, I think what's so boggling in my mind is when we talk about leadership in, in the realm of, of Christianity, it's always meant to lead towards, towards justice, toward, towards justice, towards restoration, towards the renewal, towards people experiencing shalom, people experiencing the presence of God. I mean, that, that's the whole point of, of any leadership role, whether it's the nation of Israel, whether it was a tribe of people before the nation of Israel, 
whether it was um, the religious leaders before Christ came, it was, it was always, it's always meant to lead people to a sense of freedom, a sense of restoration, a sense of renewal. And what boggles my mind is how easily we lose sight of that, mm-hmm. how easily we lose sight of that and use, to your point, Noah, our authority to lead people in a way just to get what I want instead of seeing them experience the, the hope and healing that is found in Jesus. And so it seems like so simple, but we F it up a lot. <laughs> if I can say mm-hmm. it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing that's struck me um, looking into all this stuff is just seeing the incredible, just like ripple effect that all of this has, you know, as somebody, when somebody misuses their authority, the, you know, the sin that they are doing there, like it doesn't affect only them and their family, but like over and over and over again, it's very wide reaching and it's very harmful just in general, even, even in small, you know, instances, you don't have to be someone like Robbie Zacharias to cause, you know, massive destruction, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of pain just because everybody in the church is so interconnected to each other, Mm -hmm. you know, in good ways and in bad ways. And we put so much faith in people who we're told to trust um, and and lose sight of who they represent or, Mm -hmm. or what they're supposed to be doing. And then, you know, the, the impact is felt, you know, seven, seven ripples down the line. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's even hard to identify where that, where that hurt came from or, or people who feel that hurt don't, don't even know what's happening, you know, on the inner circle of the church. They just know when they show up one day, they, you know, they were hurt by someone they heard something that um, was painful or something like that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like this is, this is my family story played out. Mm -hmm. My, my extended family story played out as a pastor's kid, the places where the churches in which we grew up, were just incredible sources of, of pain and abuse emotionally and mentally and spiritually to the point where today a large portion of my extended family, while they may identify as followers of Jesus, have very clear separations from institutional church. Um, and some of them may not even identify as followers of Jesus. And, and so like, yeah, this is a very personal topic for, for me because I've seen it play out in my life and I've seen it play out in my extended family's life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I thank God that there wasn't the sexual component like there was in the other stories, but it doesn't mean that abuse didn't happen mm-hmm. in a lot of other ways. And that's where I think, again, if we could peel off the layer, we would be shocked at how many people have the type of experiences that my family had growing up in the Mm -hmm. church, but either lack the ability to see it and name it as abuse, um, or for understandable reasons, lack the courage to name it, Mm -hmm. to come forward with it. And I know that that was like, that's been a big part of the healing journey for my family. My extended family is realizing it's okay to say what we experienced 20 years ago wasn't good. Mm -hmm. That was not that was not like biblical following Jesus character of God stuff that we experienced. And just being able to say that, like just having the permission and the safety to say, 
oh wait, that version of Christianity, that's actually not okay. Like there's some things of that that are that are not just neutral, like they're bad. <laughs> they're negative. Mm-hmm. And that's an important part of the healing process um, in distinguishing again between what we experienced at the hands of of people who are part of an institution versus our experience following the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And and something that can come out of, you know, experiencing hurt like this too, is we've talked a little bit about how bad it can get whenever you put your faith and trust into a a person. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also freedom in knowing like, Oh, I don't have to put all my faith in this person. You know, I, um, this is like a minor example. I had a professor in college um, who, you know, the, the class I took was, was philosophy and it's about Christianity. And it was really foundational in how I thought about my faith and how I felt comfortable questioning things. You know, I, that's kind of where I learned that Christianity is really big and really strong and mm-hmm. my questions aren't going to hurt God. And then, you know, after I'd graduated years later, f- finding out this professor kind of revealed himself to be, like a complete ass. Like, I don't know how else to say it, but he, he revealed himself to be actually very immature and very um, self-focused. And it's impossible. It was impossible for him to, to really consider other people's experiences. And, you know, that is really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did make me rethink, you know, what, okay. So all the stuff that he taught me, all the stuff that I learned that was so important to me, how can I really trust that when he, mm-hmm. and he can't, you know, see past the end of his own nose apparently. Um, but, you know, realizing he doesn't, he doesn't save me. He doesn't, the, the things that he taught weren't originated by him. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if there's truth in that, he didn't create that. And mm-hmm. I don't have to, you know, be as hurt by that as maybe I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't have to, you know, mourn the loss of this person in my life and um, avoid seeing like articles about how he had to resign in Mm -hmm. disgrace or whatever, because it, it, as much as, you know, that class did impact me, it wasn't, it wasn't really the class that impacted me. You know, it was the Holy spirit through its own truth. Yep. And that does take a level of maturity to be able to delineate between those two things. Mm -hmm. You know, the brokenness maybe, the brokenness that's revealed in the messenger versus just but being able to maintain the validity and the and the goodness that's in the that's in the message that's in the truth that mm-hmm. you know you were you were hearing and receiving so i think about what would be two things like if i were listening to this what would be two things that i would hope people would in some way walk away with and i think the first from from the standpoint of us as an organization at uncharted the first would be, I'd want to reiterate, this isn't like a, a bashing the church fest type of thing. It, there is, though, a healthy need to acknowledge. We've talked about sins of the past, but like this is something current. And we, we need to be very cognizant of when we say things like we are for the church and we are for, you know, all like that sort of language that can actually be pretty harmful for somebody to hear because mm-hmm. When it's like saying, you know, unintentionally might be like, we're for that abuser. And it's like, well, wait, Mm -hmm. do you know what they've done to me? And so it's important 
this in this episode to hear the difference in us saying there there is some real brokenness and sin that exists in this institution that we've created of Western evangelicalism, but still believe wholeheartedly in what is what amounts to be the bride of Christ or the people of God. Like I really do believe that when God's people are focused on true restoration and redemption and revealing glimpses of heaven on earth, like there's beautiful things that can happen, you know? And I, I think sometimes for me, at least it's easy to get so caught on the three stories or the four stories where we lose sight of the many stories we don't know about the many stories we don't know about of men and women who are living lives of humility, who are living lives of restoration. And that's, that's the capital C church that I'm pumped about, that I'm excited about, that I want to see, you know, mobilized into further kingdom mission. Mm -hmm. But the second thing I would say is again, just for anybody listening that it is so important and healthy to be able to even just articulate that there is such a thing as spiritual abuse, that there is such a thing as spiritual aggression and manipulation and that something that was done against a person, something that a person experienced that felt very shaming, that felt very guilt-ridden or manipulative, um, like to be able to go back and say, wait a minute, that was done in the name of God, that was not done in the name of religion, that was done in the name of church, but actually that was really harmful. Mm-hmm. And to be able to say like, it's okay to say that that was harmful and to start a journey of, of restoration and healing. And that, that, that healing actually is found in Christ, which is so hard to, to still see that because there's Mm -hmm. such a close association between a quote, man of God, you know, Mm -hmm. i.e. a pastor and, and God himself. Um, so I, I, that's what I would hope for anybody listening to this is not only the distinction at the uncharted level, you know, of what we mean when we talk about church, but on a more personal level that this would give the permission and maybe even help launch a person in a journey of maybe they have to go back and look at when did I experience things like this that I just have sort of stuffed away or um, convinced myself it's I'm the problem, I'm the issue because of some spiritual jargon. Um, to go back and say, no, this was, this was not right. Yeah. And I think another thing, something that I'm coming away from conversations like this that I've, I've had is that it, it can be a very scary thing, but there, I think a lot of the times what having faith means, having faith in Jesus is, you know, a willingness to, to take apart the things that, that you thought were the church the whole time to, to be willing to let these like people and influences and cultural stuff and misconceptions about faith to brush those away and believe like there there still is something there like there is still something good and true that Jesus is still mm-hmm. there at the bottom and that salvation and restoration is something that exists and God wants for you and it's okay to let go of all these things that you've been hurt by or you've seen her other people that that's not what Jesus is, but he is still there.